0: This podcast is sponsored by Zell Travel Group. Celebrating 50 years of strong partnerships across the airline industry, Zell provides interline and reaccommodation services, along with premium travel experiences that take you beyond your destination. Visit Zell.com. Lufthansa reported earnings last week, and they weren't bad. But unfortunately, not bad isn't good enough when you're enjoying a head start like they are. The airline group saw an 18% drop in fuel costs, and still its operating margin came in slightly below break-even. Lufthansa, of course, has been troubled by labor issues, but part of the problem in Q1 was also the group's low-cost unit Eurowings, which posted a negative 22% operating margin. Now granted, Eurowings faced some one-off operational problems, but on the face of it, the Eurowings endeavor seems fraught with peril. Consider that the airline is growing roughly 30% on a continent already too crowded with airlines. And it's moving into a space that's occupied by Ryanair, Whaling, Wizz Air, and EasyJet, very competitive airlines who've already achieved critical mass. It's also, meanwhile, moving into a space that almost no airline has succeeded in, low-cost long-haul. And that leads to today's basic question. For Lufthansa... Is expanding Eurowings a good idea? I'm Jason Cottrell, and joining me is the sagacious Seth Kaplan, managing partner of Airline Weekly. We're going to try to answer that question, and we're going to talk about Air France KLM and its low cost unit Transavia. We'll talk about IAG's continued success, JetBlue's fantastic quarter, and whether the C Series would be a good fit for that airline. It's all coming up in the Airline Weekly Lounge. Thanks for joining us. Seth, with Eurowings, let's start at the beginning. This is a complicated airline with a complicated history. Can you give us a quick sketch of what it is, what it's been, what is it has been what it's going
1: to be? Yeah, well, it's whole history. We take a uh- several weeks of the airline weekly Lounge and it wouldn't be terribly interesting. Uh, but, uh, very quickly, uh, it, it, um, it's, it's somewhat modern history was as a part of Lufthansa's uh, regional operations. Uh, Lufthansa didn't always own it, but it, it, over time became a wholly owned unit of Lufthansa. And, and, and in recent years, uh, just the past couple years, uh, Two main things have happened. Number one, uh, Lufthansa took its German wings unit, which I mean, people around the world know it for unfortunate reasons these days. But, you know, it was this rather large, uh, low cost short haul unit of Lufthansa that oh, most recently was doing a lot of the the non-hub short haul flying, you know, uh, flying from places other than primarily Frankfurt and Munich, places like Dusseldorf and so forth within Europe. So. Uh, Lufthansa kind of turned German wings into Eurowings. Uh, more complicated than that, but that's es- essentially the upshot uh, in terms of short haul. Uh, but now Eurowings has expanded into long haul, low cost long haul flying. Go you know, from you know Cologne to places around the world, and it's it's using crews uh, that come from Sun Express, which is a joint venture. Talk about complicated ownership structures. Uh, a joint venture between Lufthansa and Turkish Airlines. So uh, those lower
0: paid Sun Express crews are the ones staffing the long haul EuroWings operations. Now, pretend you're on Lufthansa's management team for a moment. What's the business case for growing EuroWings? Well, it's it's low cost growth.
1: Uh, you know, th- this is an airline that has uh, struggled to grow profitably. Um, you know, th- th- of course, a, a rather expensive legacy cost structure. Uh, you know, Lufthansa mainline is. Clearly, not not a uh, a low cost operation. Uh, you know, some of the other units to, to varying degrees uh, have have lower costs. You know, something like Austrian Airlines, for example. But uh, yeah, basically Lufthansa looks at, looks at this, says, look, this is this is the way to grow. Uh, you know, it achieves more scale, which just scale in and of itself tends to depress unit costs. But then on top of that, it's doing it uh, not even by hiring oh you know more junior Lufthansa crews, but with crews that are in a whole lot less that work under, you know, more flexible work rules and and all that sort of thing. And and, and Lufthansa thinks that leisure is, is where the growth is uh, in, in Europe, that basically, you know, the corporate demand is growing very slowly. And uh, particularly now, although, you know, this was all envisioned before oil prices uh, collapse, particularly now with oil being cheap, they see it as look, there's uh, a discretionary income out there, price sensitive travelers uh, who, if, if it can deliver uh, at a low enough cost, a low enough fare from the perspective of the travelers, it, it can make money doing this. That
0: that's the hope. But Eurowings had a bad quarterly result. On the other hand, they're just getting started. It was largely about operations. It's also an off-peak quarter. How much can we read into that bad result? Well,
1: uh, look, it, it, it's uh, what was it you said? Negative twenty-two percent. Uh, that's going to be hard to make up. Uh, uh, you know, with with a with a good summer, um, you know, that's that's certainly doesn't doesn't inspire confidence. Uh, even though you know, look, uh, you know, anything, yeah, when, when you're just starting off, as as Eurowings is in, in the long haul business, you know, you you wouldn't um, expect it to be terribly profitable right off the bat. Certainly, uh, not. Uh, you know, when you're talking about some very seasonal flying, uh, too early to, 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 you know, to call it a failure or, or anything of that sort, I'm sure Lufthansa would have liked something better than that.
0: Now, there are a lot of low-cost airlines in Europe with varying models, both short-haul and long-haul. Is there room for a bigger Eurowings?
1: well uh you know l- l- tons of things there is uh, for for a number of reasons just you know
0: sort of on its own
1: merits and also strategically uh, you know the, the company sees this unit perhaps playing a role in in uh, consolidation uh, you know by the way having, um you know not not just sort of some oh as yet unimagined uh, uh, mergers but uh, you know, Lufthansa looking to take control, full control rather, of Brussels Airlines, of, of which it currently owns a little less than half. You know, it, it wants to use Eurowings as a tool to sort of keep uh, Brussels Airlines costs low and, and, and so forth. So, um, you know, it, ha- it has some strategic ideas for for this airline. You know, look, there, there are other airlines. I mean, you mentioned them in the intro. Uh, you know, Ryan or EasyJet, Whaling was Air, that are all making plenty of money flying low cost short haul. And so Lufthansa basically feels, well, uh, you know, why not us? And uh, that's what they're betting. Uh, of course, of course, uh, there are answers to that. Why not us question? Uh, you, you know, it's, it's, it's been tough over the years for airlines to uh, make a go with it with um, with low cost units within a legacy airline company. But um, uh, they do at least have the benefit of, of learning from uh, from all those other experiences
0: over the years. And what does Eurowings' growth mean for the competitive landscape for European airlines? You know, what does it mean for Air Berlin? What does it mean for Norwegian? Ooh, and so on. Yeah, well, uh, those two airlines, you know, uh, well, Air Berlin is basically insolvent, uh,
1: you know, it, on, on its own merits, um, you know, living living off um, from its from its benefactor, uh, Etihad. Uh, you know, Norwegian, not, not not in the shape of, that I just described of Air Berlin, but, you know, but an airline that... Um, uh, that, you know, certainly has, has has struggled at least to turn a corner. Um, both of those, of course, flying long haul. And yeah, this is this is new capacity um, in in that space. I mean, they're all, uh, uh, you know, rather small. Norwegian growing very rapidly Air Berlin, you know, the, 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 at this point, not, uh, you know, it, mostly you're just talking about overall capacity across the Atlantic you know um, it, it, it's not as if a eurowings flight uh, per se ha, has a big impact on on a, on a Norwegian flight let's say uh, you know typically flying well always flying at this point from you know from somewhere else in Europe uh, usually to, to a different city in America you know v- very very small it, what's more interesting is just the impact that all of these airlines uh, have on the overall uh, transatlantic landscape uh you know of course uh, a a market that is is uh you know much more consolidated in some respects than it once was because of all the powerful joint ventures um but then that left room for uh you know for other kinds of of service and and that's that's what we're seeing here Uh, all obviously excellent for consumers you know not a terribly big problem at this point for the giant joint ventures uh but you know whether those airlines themselves can make money doing this on a sustained basis you know that they obviously have a lot to prove.
0: And that brings us to our airline 101 question. Dun dunna. What's the difference between low cost long haul and long haul leisure? Oh, no
1: real uh, difference, uh, basically interchangeable terms. Um, to me, it's very simple. You know, uh, what's a low-cost airline? It's an airline with low costs, and and that 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 might sound obvious, but but I think sometimes people, um, you know, kind of try to look too much at the at the product and the rest of it. You know, there there are airlines that are that. You know, might not be classified as low-cost airlines, but um, they just have very low costs, and they win on cost. You know, an airline. You know, I think Copa, for example, is is a, is a great example. Uh, Iceland Air, another. Um, you know, airlines that just um, that part of how they manage to succeed um, is is just that their costs are a lot lower than their competition. You know, even though that in the, those the case of those two, they have business class cabins and and uh, uh, you know the complicated. The networks and partners and all the other things that low cost carriers aren't supposed to have. The same thing here, you know. I think if, if you uh, if you can achieve very low costs with long haul, then then you're a low cost long haul carrier. Uh, the issue generally with these airlines has not been the costs, um, it's been the revenues. You know, generally it's been you
0: know costs that are very low, but
1: but unfortunately revenues that are that are even lower.
0: One more question about Eurowings, the airline does provide Lufthansa a way to employ cheaper labor. How has that worked out? Well, um, you know, again on, on the cost side,
1: uh, oh, you know, fine, I, I suppose. I mean, it's very early days, and that, that's another thing I should mention. We talk about these these uh, you know big loss margins. I mean, you know, the long haul part is, is still you know still very small. Yeah, the the, the, the problem is, uh, like I said a minute ago, it's uh, it's it, it, the the problem has never been the costs with low cost long haul. It's, it's almost always been the revenue. And and part of the reason for that is that it's very hard to differentiate on cost when you are a, a low cost airline flying long haul um, to the same extent that you can on short haul uh, and and very that's uh, it's, it's a, it's a much longer and interesting discussion but you know basically in brief. The the things that differentiate low cost carriers from, uh, you know, legacy or full service carriers, whatever you want to call them, uh, tend to be things that matter more on short haul. Uh, So, you know, you ask about the labor costs. Um, Of course, every airline would rather pay their workers less rather than more. But although no airline will say, oh, you know, we don't care how much we're paying our employees, um, the reality is that it just doesn't matter as much on long haul as it does on short haul. Uh, Labor costs are just a smaller percentage of the cost pie on on long haul. You could get the workers for free, but if the revenue is not there, uh, you know, on routes where uh, it's kind of all about fuel and aircraft ownership costs and and stuff like that, um, you're not going to make any money.
0: All right, moving over to one of Lufthansa's peers, Air France KLM did even worse, negative three percent operating margin in Q1. Yeah, um,
1: you know, the, the, a company that uh, continues to to struggle. Um, not as if they're, uh, you know, like a, like an ostrich with its head in the sand in terms of their issues. They're well aware of them. Uh, obviously, they have huge labor issues uh, first and foremost. Not a not a terribly inspirational margin, obviously uh, for the first quarter. although to be clear again, this is you know, highly seasonal Europe. Um, you know an airline can do okay uh, you know, despite a, a a Q1 loss. you know they certainly have uh, a lot to prove and and they're going to have to have a very good summer to uh, to make up
0: for some of the recent quarters. And Transavia, Air France KLM's answer to Eurowings actually improved. But they still did even worse than Eurowings. Transavia's operating margin was. No, wait, wait, wait. don't. Do, we have,
1: do you have to say that number?
0: I gotta say it for our journalistic integrity. Here goes. Negative thirty nine percent.
1: Oof. Yeah. Um. No, it's, it's it's rough. Uh. And 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 that's an airline, by the way. That's uh, you know the big distinction. Well, One big distinction, certainly, between that and Eurowings is that it doesn't fly long haul. You know, it's it's all short haul. So this is what Air France KLM has been trying to use to grow in a reasonably cost effective way away from its hubs. um, You know, kind kind of like what uh, Lufthansa was doing with German Wings and now Eurowings in terms of the short haul uh, market. But you know, again, it's, it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's so different to try to run one of these low cost units within a legacy airline company, um, than it is to, to be just, you know, whiz air. Um, and, and, and that's all you do. And, uh, yeah, they've, they've struggled. The thing too, um, with, with both of those, with Eurowings and Transavia, you don't forget that the costs, uh, include, uh, the way that they've angered the, the, the mainline unions. And so, uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's tough to do all the math, but, um, you know, some of these strikes and all of it have been, you know, that that's political capital that Lufthansa and Air France Calum have been both spent, you know, trying to uh, get their, well, cajole, browbeat, uh, trying to, you know, get uh, some consent, however you want to look at it, from their unions to uh, go along with them. So if if they don't even work out... They will have been very costly because, you know, because they could have given the workers something else, and gotten something else out of the workers uh, rather than their, however, uh, you know, willingly or not, their agreement to uh, allow these units to go forward.
0: One more thing. Air France KLM named a new CEO, Jean-Marc Jeanaloc. He's a ground transport guy, not an airline guy. Does that matter? Not per se. Um, you
1: know, yeah, he came from... Uh, uh, RATP, the, the, uh, the transport agency that runs the uh, Paris Metro. Um, so you know it's it's passenger transport of a the, of a different sort. Uh, he he did actually though have some uh, airline experience back in the '90s. He was an executive at, at an airline that was called AOM. That was sort of a predecessor to the uh, current low cost carriers. Um, but look, uh, you know the new CEO at United, Oscar Munoz, uh, you know, comes from from rail. Theo Mullen, former CEO at, at Delta, um, you know, I, I know he left under not the greatest circumstances, but, you know, brilliant guy who had, who had to, you know early part of his time at Delta went very well. Uh, you know, he, he he was he was a rail guy you know, first as well. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know that, you know, when you look around that in and of itself matters all that much. You know, this is France where. Um, his his experience dealing with with well something we just talked about a few minutes ago with labor very very important um, so uh, uh, you know airline experience almost has to be secondary to that when, when you're dealing with the the CEO of Air France KLM
0: and that gives me another airline 101 question dun dunna is there a prototype for a successful airline CEO
1: I I, I don't think so Um, you know it's it's evolved somewhat where current successful CEOs tend uh to more often have a you know some sort of a commercial background uh you know rather than an operational one if you just take okay what you know what about lawyers right herb kelleher uh you know you could argue the most successful ceo ever the, you know, the founder of southwest a lawyer um, jeff smizek at united uh, you know stepped down and you know under under a cloud uh uh last year i mean it finally had to do with with uh the port authority scandal but um you know not you, you couldn't say that was a very successful tenure even aside from that uh he's a lawyer richard anderson a very successful tenure at, at delta obviously until he just retired a lawyer you know doug parker an american very successful you know finance guy uh yeah and and, and of course you know there's the history of of, of operational guys like like Gordon Bethune, who have been very successful. So yeah, it's it, it, it hard to look at and say that there's uh, that there's one career path that's predictive of, of a CEO success.
0: All right, that was Lufthansa and Air France KLM. Let's round out Europe's big three with IAG, the airline group that includes British Airways, Iberia, Fueling, and Aer Lingus. Now, I say big three, but in doing so, I might be insulting Willie Walsh, who sounds like he doesn't want to be a part of the big three anymore. He basically said he doesn't consider Lufthansa and Air France KLM to be peers at this time. Was he joking? Well,
1: yeah. I mean, you know, if anything, I mean, if we're talking about the size, which generally we're talking about the big 3 that's what we mean. Good point. Yeah, IAG <laughs> is the is the smallest uh, of the three. I mean, at least in terms of total company revenues. Lufthansa group uh, uh considerably larger than the other two. Air France-KLM a bit larger than IAG. Lufthansa of course has, has some non uh, non-aeronautical businesses uh, to a greater extent, but um anyway, no, yeah, I mean he he's, he he means they're not nearly as profitable at this point. And, and, and he's right. I mean, you know, IAG has, has uh, established some distance between, between itself and, and those other two. Uh, you know, it went through a rough period uh, some years back. It sort of took care of all the labor issues that are now uh, plaguing the other two groups. And of course, it's done a lot else most recently, um, incorporating Aer
0: Lingus into the fold, as you mentioned. All right. IAG chalked up a 3% operating margin in the weak first quarter. Does Walsh deserve to be so smug?
1: Yeah, that's that's pretty good for Europe. I mean, look, the, the demand um, variance by season is just so much greater than, for example, uh, North America or, or, or you know, most other parts of the world. Um, so so it, it's just nearly impossible to adjust capacity relative to demand in a way that you can achieve, let's say, what the U.S. carriers have been achieving lately, which is where their their first quarter margins are are just about as good as 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 you know what they get in the summer peak. Um, very very hard to do that uh, in, in Europe. You know, even Ryanair, one of the most probable airlines in the world, struggles to put up a, a double digit operating margin uh, for the first quarter. So so yeah, a- anything positive in, in the first quarter is is quite good. And, and you know, one one major difference uh, between IAG and the others its largest unit uh, does very well in the first quarter. You, you mentioned the four, right? Uh, BA, Iberia, Voiling, and Aer Lingus. Well, guess what? You know, three of them lost money uh, in the first quarter. But those three were Iberia, Voiling, and Aer Lingus. British Airways, the largest, did rather well. And so that pulled up the group. Whereas if you look at um, you know Lufthansa uh, Group and, and Air France KLM, in those cases, the largest mainline unit, Lufthansa and Air France, respectively, you know were
0: a drag on earnings rather than pulling up the group. Okay, I'm going to move to North America. A couple of weeks ago, we gushed about how Southwest and Alaska had triumphant quarters. But that was before JetBlue beat them both with a 22% operating margin. And this was the second quarter in a row that JetBlue posted great earnings. We talked in episode 25 about how JetBlue is back. They're charging for bags. They're densifying their seats. Their network is largely safely sheltered in the U.S. So just to make this interesting, let me turn the tables and ask, what's going wrong at JetBlue?
1: Yeah, um, it's certainly more of a struggle to, to answer that question than to answer what's going right. Um, well, look, as much as they you know talk glowingly about how well Mint is doing, there's little question that it's uh, that, that's well not what's pulling up their earnings. Um, you know, pro- probably doing less badly than it once was. Uh, you know, maybe it's become useful. Um, you know, fortunately, Transcon uh, just overall has has has, um, has improved. So look, you know they they they're kind of in the right place, uh, you know in terms of providing a rather nice product uh, to people who want it. Um, but you know, but, but that's not leading their profitability almost certainly. There's some trouble spots in the network. Look, they fly to Colombia. Uh, you mentioned mostly U.S., but yeah, not all U.S. Um, uh, you know they have they have, a, they have significant international exposure. Uh, you know, fortunately they have they tend to have more U.S. point of sale. Um, and the problem with with international often is uh uh you know when, when the point of sale is abroad people buying weak currency so they don't have that so much but uh yeah colombia's weak on um, puerto rico not technically international but uh uh you know puerto rico is, is weak they've said they have labor cost issues um you know that's that's one thing that uh that they're combating so you know uh, yeah i mean it's it's it, they have their issues but um a lot more going right than wrong and, and, a, and a lot um, of tailwinds there because you know you mentioned the the bag fees and densification but don't forget the densification hasn't even started yet, really. I mean, so, so you know, they're going to be adding, what, 15 seats on, on uh, their A320s here in the next few years. Um, and, and that is just going to do wonders for their unit costs and you get an extra 15 seats of revenue on board the plane. Uh, you know, and if, if that works as well for them as, as for other airlines that have done it,
0: um, you know, their, their best days might be yet to come. Bloomberg reported JetBlue is talking to Bombardier about the C-Series. What do you think? Would it be a good fit? Well,
1: it's kind of a super hard question. I mean, sort of part one is, you know, do they need a plane that size? And then part two would be, OK, well, is that the right plane? You know, they, they've had these E-190s for oh, you know, a decade now that, that, that never really succeeded uh, to the extent that they wanted them to. You know, the idea was that you know, they get a plane that they could penetrate certain smaller markets with low cost flying, um, you know, they couldn't support. Uh, the, you know, an A320 couldn't support a larger aircraft, you'll be able to go into places that, oh, let's say Southwest maybe could never go just because it didn't have planes that size. And, you know, it turned out that they were really kind of um, trying to thread a, a tough needle, you know, a market that's um, just big, you know, big enough to support low cost service, but not so big that it would attract somebody else. And anyway, you know, the E-190s are, are, are getting up their age now. And um, so if they want to continue that, which you know we've discussed over the weeks, you know lots of things work nowadays with cheap fuel, uh, particularly in the U.S. market. That's you know that that didn't work several years ago, and so you know if they're looking at it and saying, you know what, this, this kind of flying isn't all that bad, but we're not going to do it with 190s forever, and they need a replacement. Well, um, you know sort of the obvious choices would be either the E2s, the, the that's that's the uh, newly engined uh, Embraer area jets, um, or the C series. And the C-Series, uh, look, it's it's um, it has become viable uh, now with the Delta order, um, you know, and, and 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 the others that it's gotten uh, Air Canada not yet confirmed, but probably will do so soon. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, you know, C-Series by by all appearances, uh, you know, should should be a good plane, you know. Obviously, it'll take some time before we really have, uh, you know, before you can really talk about the operating economics of it. It'll have to be in revenue service at a number of airlines. Um, but, you know, if they pull the trigger now, they'll probably get a discount commensurate with uh, the fact that they're, uh, uh, you know, willing to show some early faith before you know, before all the numbers are in.
0: OK, let's close the show with a lightning round. <laughs> Now we're way behind on our coverage because of the Delta interview last week, which was great by the way. Um, but a million but a million earnings reports have come out. And I thought we'd run through a bunch of them real quick. I'll give you the airline and the Q one operating margin. You give us an interesting tidbit, preferably in a lightning fast manner. <laughs> okay, here it goes. Air Canada, five percent operating margin.
1: Yeah, it might not sound too good, but uh, you know, that that's as good as
0: as well as they've ever done in the first quarter,
1: uh, very impressive for for Air Canada. WestJet, twelve percent operating margin, kind of the opposite. Uh, you know, it sounds pretty good, but for them, uh, you know,
0: relatively uh, weak uh, you know, relative to their own very profitable history. Oh, very evocative. Uh, Japan Airlines, thirteen percent. Uh, yeah, they're they're uh,
1: doing great. This is an airline that uh, you know really used bankruptcy to beat costs out of its. Operation restructured itself in other ways too, its network and so forth, and uh, continuing to do very well. All
0: Nippon, 5%.
1: A big gap between the close competitors in every other way, but Japan Airlines, the the far more uh, profitable airline, largely, although not entirely, uh, because it had the benefit of bankruptcy. I mean, it, it just took so much cost out of its uh, out of its operation that explains a, a big part of the gap. On the pond, drifting over into some other businesses, uh, you know, trying trying to do um, uh, lots of different things, um, but yeah, unable to close the gap so far. Copa, seventeen percent rather uh, good, considering all of the uh, challenges that it's facing, uh, you know, even though it stays as, as among the very most profitable airlines in the world, might be uh, might be over, at, at least for the short to medium term.
0: Okay, I'm going to give you these in a group. Air China, China Eastern, China Southern, 15%, 13%, and 14% respectively, and then Hainan Airlines, 24%. Yeah,
1: Hainan Airlines, Wow. The, the very profitable flagship of a group of airlines that, you know, sort of have mixed results. But in general, um, you know, the, the consumer economy in China so far so good. Um, you know, I think everybody keeps waiting for, you know, maybe the consumer numbers to reflect, you know, some of the, uh, uh, some of the problems elsewhere in the economy. But, uh, uh, you know, so far those airlines are obviously doing very, very well. We'll see how well they do as they push farther into uh, secondary and tertiary long haul markets. Virgin
0: America nine percent
1: selling high
0: <laughs> you know when when the least profitable
1: airline in America is able to fetch oh uh, four billion dollars including the, the debt and so forth from uh, uh, from Alaska yeah they uh, they probably timed that very well Spirit 22 percent. Yeah, one kind of like what I said with West General. Uh, you know, by by its own standards, you know, here's here's actually one of a few U.S. airlines whose margins are, oh, marginally, uh, you might say, slipping, but um, but but still doing very well by almost anybody else's standards. Allegiant, thirty five percent. Well, I guess that would be one of the exceptions. <laughs> when I say Spirit doing well by anybody else's standards, not doing well by by Allegiant standards. Uh, yeah, they they are uh, remain. Among the very most profitable airlines in the world, even as they push into uh, markets that are not their traditional types of markets. These sort of mid-sized uh, U.S. cities um, no longer sort of only thriving, taking people from very small cities to very large leisure destinations. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they've uh, made their share of mistakes. Hawaii was a big one, but um, they're moving on and doing fine.
0: Volaris, 16%. It's
1: the ultra low C- LCC model. It's uh not the only way to make money in the airline industry, but if you had to start with one model, um start with start with start as a ULCC. They're they're doing it very well. Aero Mexico, five percent. A lot to be excited about. Uh you know, the, um, the, the, sort of the debate about um open skies between US and Mexico, or anyway, something that's that's very much like open skies. Will it help? Who who will it hurt? You know, we'll see how many new routes direct Actually, are because of it, but one thing that it absolutely enables is uh, it was still pending regulatory approval. But uh, the joint venture between Delta and Aeromexico, and if if uh, if, if this does for Aeromexico anything like what uh, you know Delta's involvement in, in some other airlines around the world, um, I mean, gosh, look at Virgin Atlantic how quickly it turned itself around. Uh, then Aeromexico has has um, a lot to be excited about for an airline that that's uh, that's already uh, doing reasonably well.
0: Indigo, 17%.
1: Yeah, that's that's uh, just a real exception in its market. Um, you know, India uh, is, is a is a messy airline market, but here's one airline that in, in not very many years has managed to you know really establish itself as sort of, you might say, the Southwest Airlines of, of India. Um, simple, very reliable, um, very dense network, doesn't fly to too many cities, but lots of frequencies, lots of you know, corporate travel friendly frequencies and one of Airbus's best customers in the world.
0: Iceland Air negative ten percent. Yeah,
1: nothing to worry about. That's uh, you know they, they are highly seasonal. They're so much smaller in the winter than they are in the summer that um, even though the negative margins can be big when you add it up over the course of a year, uh, it doesn't really drag down their earnings that much because they just don't fly as much um, in, in the winter. But um, yeah, they're they're getting into wide body flying now. Seven sixty seven flying. Let's see if they can. Uh, you know, managed to do as reasonably well with that as they have with uh the 757 one of one of the world's quietly profitable
0: airlines congratulations seth you've survived another lightning round (laughs) i know it's your favorite part of the show and this show by the way is over thanks for joining us we'll be back next week with another episode of the airline weekly lounge say jason
1: yeah question yeah at the beginning of the show you called me sagacious Yeah. What does that that mean?
0: It means you have good mental discernment. Mm. I had to look it up.